0: How can you be part of a religious community that's straight up just a bunch of Sometimes it feels like the church is trying vicious? to hold you. The church seems to be stuck that in they their ways exist. when the rest of the community is so obsessed they with the They keep trying to get answers, would but they never don't even be a know part the of a questions that that not
1: welcoming at all. The church is long? the most t- vocal political voice hearing. against immigration. Some churches still don't want I claim to claim that worship is the actual divinity. How can your story be good that it the majority of people? The church I seems to be stuck
0: in the their ways so, when the rest of the like, culture is missing. It seems like, like so much of the church Exclusive, is more concerned with being a good American. Thinking, are thinking, homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, and disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world.
1: <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the next episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And this is a particularly exciting episode because this is my first interview and conversation for this podcast that I'm ever doing. I don't know if you knew that, Jonathan. And so today, I'm having a conversation with Jonathan Merritt. So Jonathan is a contributing writer for The Atlantic, and correct me if I'm wrong, starting October 1st, will become a contributing editor for Religion News Services, And Jonathan is the author of four books, Green Like God, A Faith of Our Own, Jesus is Better Than You Imagined, I don't have the subtitles in here, and his newest book, which will become a little bit of the catalyst for today's conversation, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. So, this guy is killing it. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining
0: us on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you
1: that people don't know it's a, it's 11 a.m. in New York city right now, which means it's 5 a.m. here in Honolulu. He, I think he did that to test how bad I wanted it. His assistant was like 11 a.m. I was like, I'm there. (laughs) Let's, let's do it. (laughs) And also another funny thing is this first interview for the church needs therapy was between you and James Finley from, from the CAC. Um, from my perspective, one of the greatest, most profound living mystics right now in the West, and Kelly Brown Douglas, one of the original sort of pioneers of womanist theology, a woman who shaped me so much. So it was between you three and you beat them. <laughs> it's not just because you got uh, back to me the quickest. It's because you're, you're here and you got that.
0: Well, I'm, I am honored to be the first up.
1: Now, I think for the people would be good. Let's start just by zooming out a bit and beginning with a short bio of, think about it like this, you know, you can let the people know, this is how I was shaped, especially in terms of thinking about and language and talking about God. And then here's some of the bigger movements of my life of how I've been reshaped Mm -hmm. and how it's connected with how I think about and talk about God.
0: You know, I, I was raised in the American South um, in Georgia, outside of Atlanta. And I i was raised by a very prominent religious leader, a megachurch pastor, a televangelist. My dad was president of the Southern Baptist Convention when I was um, younger. So, you know, the largest evangelical denomination in America with sort of fundamentalist roots. And um, that was the way that I was raised. I was raised to believe that the Bible is the word of God and not only the word of God, but the words of God that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it could sort of be parsed and, and preached, uh, in a very hyper literal way. And anything that departed from that was, was heresy. So, uh, the theological conservatism that I grew up with was tethered to political conservatism. Mm. And in many ways, they, they kind of mirror each other and so i grew up in a home where my dad used to say he was to the right of ronald reagan Mm. and i you know grew up watching um conservative uh, christian programming and you know reading ann coulter books and Mm. uh when fox news came out i was a avid fox news watcher Uh, went to liberty university for my undergrad and then things started to shift Uh, after that, I I decided I wanted to be a religion writer. I went back to seminary and to grad school to study religion and uh, ended up being a pastor for a little while, a teaching pastor at uh, my dad's church for about four years and loved it. And it was all great. Um, But there were just several moments where as I started to return to the text, And as I started to listen to what a friend of mine calls the authority of my own experience, Mm -hmm. it was shaping and reshaping my faith in ways that um, I didn't expect. And in ways that, frankly, because of the way I was raised, made me very afraid. Mm -hmm. Afraid for my soul. Afraid Mm -hmm. for whether or not I was leaving the quote-unquote quote, unquote, faith, the true faith, Mm. Um, whether I was uh, being lured away by false teaching, all of the fear triggers that had been implanted in me were being flipped as I was going through deconstruction. And so I think it probably took me a bit longer to go through that period than a lot of people because I had internalized so much fear Mm. Uh, about that journey and what that journey would mean for me. I had been indoctrinated in the myth of the slippery slope, mm-hmm. that if you take one step away from what you know, before you 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 realize it, you will have given up everything.
1: And no one and told you how fun. No one no one through. said when you hit the slippery slope, it could it could be fun. It could lead you to great places. <laughs> right. <laughs> right.
0: Or or when you hit the slippery slope, you you may actually realize you need it to get away. Mm, Uh, you know, the slippery slope assumes that where you are is where you should be.
1: Exactly.
0: And uh, I don't know most people who, who would say flatly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm exactly where I should be. I I say sometimes to people who are, who have criticized me for, for my, my changes and my openness to change. I'll say, you know, I've got a friend who's a pastor. I'll say, man, it must be so nice to have (sighs) figured out God, and life and the universe when you were 23 and in your MDiv. How wonderful that was. Because there are some people who literally have not changed. They mm. haven't shifted at all uh, their beliefs. And that is just not my experience. There's a, there's a great quote, by the way, I'll tell you. That, and I, I, I love this quote. I don't know if you've ever read any Christian Wyman great theologian and poet, teaches at Yale Divinity School. Mm. But he says, whatever faith you emerge with at the end of your life is going to not be simply affected by that life, but intimately dependent upon it. Mm. And he says, if you believe at 50, what you believed at 15, then you have not lived or you have denied the reality of your life. Mm. And so any changes that I have had, you know, in my life, have just been learning to accept the reality of my life, the authority of my own experience and seeing the text for mm-hmm. what I believe it really says.
1: Yeah, no, that's one. When I hear that, I'm always so fascinated with people's experience who grow up. Like you can't kind of grow up more in the church when people use that language of growing up in the church. Like I didn't even know there was a right of Ronald Reagan in the eighties until now. I didn't even know that was possible. Mm-hmm. But I always laugh because I didn't grow up in the church at all. I had a whole different life. And so my friends who grew up in the church as we're older trip out on my life and think it's fascinating what I went through. But I'm like, what? I didn't know kids raised Christian flags in class to like ask for an answer. Or I remember I actually ended up after University of Hawaii finishing my undergrad at a, a an evangelical Bible college in California and uh and it was a very charismatic one and i remember they were like we all had seen the jesus camp movie remember that documentary jesus of all those little kids and this was my first time around christians and i was at a bible college so i was very much like thrown into it and when we saw the movie i was like dude did you guys see this and i'm like kind of like flabbergasted at what it was. And they're like, dude, that was just like every camp I ever went to. (laughs) One, it's always just so fascinating to me how that is. And then two, I think that's one of the things that so many people can connect with is as a person. And I think people need to see the people who have gone through that life who have been so immersed in the church, but at the same time have found the freedom, have found the permission in their unique ways to allow themselves to evolve, allow themselves to change, allow themselves to reimagine and come through it and still be a person of compassion, still be a person who identifies with Jesus and still be a person who's for the world. Cause a lot of people don't have those people that they see. You know, I'm going to, I was going to ask another question, but I want to follow up with this. Tell me about a moment or what it felt like internally when you were on the cusp of what would become a paradigm shift and a part of you, you you can have those moments where you're like, am I really going to go there? Or if I really accept this, I know it means it's not that, that, and that, and you can kind of start to feel some of that internal wobbling and how you felt that. And then sort of how you still had the courage to step into just whatever, the simple path of truth that you were on.
0: You know, there've been a, there've been a lot of, of different moments. Um, Some, uh, some of it, I think, because I'm such a reader has come in books Mm. And then some of it has come through incarnated life. It's just Mm. brushing up against stories that your theology cannot make sense of. Mm. And so you have a choice to either um, ignore the story um, or you can change your thinking Mm. or reconsider your thinking. And that for me has been a constant, a constant shift. I mean, you think about what happened if you rewind the tape into the American civil rights movement or even into the abolitionist movement. It wasn't that people were gaining new theological resources and just woke up. They just read the Bible one day and said, wait a minute, that's not what this says. They were interacting with real people and those real experiences were driving them back to the text. Mm. And so I think it is learning to be open to, and not skeptical to the wisdom of our own experience, you know, fundamentalism and and so much of Christianity that doesn't even identify itself as fundamentalism is fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. It, It survives by creating a fear or a skepticism of the very things that you need to survive, thrive and grow. Mm-hmm. And so what it says is, is you cannot trust your experience, mm-hmm. that your experience it will mislead you, that your experience um, will will take you places you shouldn 't go. Uh, the problem is is that we 're all actually all, all the time we 're all sort of living through the lens mm-hmm. uh, of our own experience. I mean, if you 're an evangelical uh, you 're a part of a religious movement that 's only a few hundred years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn 't exist in the 1400s and Mm -hmm. the 1200s and the 1000s and the 700s and the 600s. And no, it doesn't go all the way back to Jesus. Mm -hmm. The things that you say and believe in many cases are unprecedented. Mm -hmm. They are not historically rooted. They're new. And so the idea that you're afraid of the new or you're afraid of experience is sort of comical if you're Protestant Christian. Mm -hmm. And uh, I always try to remind people that they should feel the permission to do what they are already doing, which is to borrow a phrase from Fre- Frederick Beekner to listen to your life mm-hmm. and that your life there, there's a, there's, there's a kind of knowing that comes through your life mm-hmm. that doesn't come through other things. Mm-hmm. And so allowing people to listen to that. Once I gave myself permission to listen to the authority of my own experience mm-hmm. Uh, it, it changed everything. And, and you yeah. know, I, I sort of identify as a mystic and that's I think mm-hmm. one of the things that Christian mystics have always done is to listen to their own life experience, knowing and trusting that the spirit is intimately connected to our actual lives, that the mm-hmm. spirit is intimately connected to our actual relationships, that the spirit isn't confined to or restricted to uh, a book or a set of books waiting for us there to show up, that the spirit is intersecting us in the places and spaces where we find ourselves every day. And so mm-hmm. learning to look for the, for the spirit in those places and allowing the spirit to change us, I think is incredibly important.
1: So good. Yeah. It's one of the things, even from the beginning of our community, imagine that we've said is we ask our elders for guidance and we ask them for wisdom, but we never ask for permission. Mm -hmm. simply because that permission comes from what you're saying, the authorizing presence of the spirit within that's living in and through. And some might even say as your life. And I think coming through when you have authoritarian kind of structures around you, growing up church family, it's all obviously interconnected. It's so fascinating to see how scared, And I understand how scared people are to lose those external authority sources as the permission givers, as they embrace their own inner authority, because there is a loss that differentiated self gaining your inner authority. There's a real loss of mom, dad, pastor, can't just tell me what it is. So it's both terrifying, but then as you know, when you go through it, liberating because you start to trust that experience more. I'm glad you said that because I think that's so central to the whole journey you're talking about. So to make that transition, each episode on The Church Needs Therapy, as if the church is going to therapy, we talk about, let's talk about a different issue this week, right? If the church was in therapy, what issues need to come up? And so today, coming sort of out of your book, Speaking of God from Scratch, We're talking about the fluid, the dynamic nature of language, why the church needs to reimagine how it uses some of its core words, and why, in your words, which I love, the church needs to play with these words more. So here's the first question on that. Why does the church right now need to reimagine how they use some of their favorite words?
0: Well, I think we, I would say for a few reasons. One, we're already doing it. Um, Mm. we're doing it, whether we realize it or not, um, the words that we use, uh, have not had fixed meanings for all time. In fact, one, one misconception people have is that, you know, when you go to the dictionary, you, you can find out what a word means. Mm. That's not true. When you go to a dictionary, you find out the way a word is used. A word derives its meaning from its usage. So when we say grace or sin or hell or salvation or belief, or whatever it is, Jesus, there are connotations that are attached to that word that shape its definition. And those those meanings change over time. In fact, in many cases, and I talk about this in my book, in many cases, if you look at the words, even in the Bible, you'll find that they're changing meaning throughout the Bible. One of the Absolutely. best chapters I have is on the word sin, I think, <clears throat> for this point. Uh, the way that the word sin takes on it goes through at least three different shifts just in the biblical narrative. And of course, mm. we talk about sin in a lot of different ways today than than, uh, you'll find in the text. But what I I think I'm trying to to say to people is, is that as these meanings are changing over time, changing in ways to make sense of our changing lives, Mm. um, we have to be intentionally engaged in those transformation processes. Mm. We have to actually begin asking ourselves, what do we think? these words mean because otherwise words are taking on meanings all around us and we're just accepting what they mean. Mm. Well, then what happens? We find that certain words are used to shame people Mm. or they're weaponized or they misrepresent God Mm. and, and, and they make God out to be something less than loving. You know, we know that God is a lot of things, but not in the sense that God is love that the mm-hmm. essence of God is love. And so anytime we use language that makes God less than love, we're driven back to reconsider the meaning of that word. Mm-hmm. So as our eyes begin to open to the ways that I may use a word that uh, a, a friend of mine, who's a woman will say, let me tell you how that makes me feel. Or a person of color might say, let me tell you how, how that, that the way you use that word affects me. And it drives me back to reconsider what, what am I saying when I'm saying what I'm saying? Mm. And I think that's a question that a lot of people don't ask, but I think Absolutely. that being a, 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 a responsible spiritual seeker means being an intentional spiritual speaker.
1: Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think some people might hear the things you're saying and think playing with language seems scary. Mm-hmm. especially biblical language or playing with language can sound flippant and it can sound maybe even reckless. So how for you is playing with language, not only critical to our evolving journey of faith, but also how does it help us be faithful to the story that we're a part of?
0: Well, <laughs> uh, I think, I think one of the ways that we can be faithful to the story that we're a part of is to see that the story that we're a part of is ongoing. Mm. It's still happening. It's still unfolding. Uh, the Christian story is not something that happened. It's something that happens mm. over and over again. Yep. And as a result, there is a kind of, both a universal and timeless nature to it, and also a, a kind of dynamic, imaginative nature to it. Mm. Uh, there's a great book by a theologian called Yar, named Jaroslav named Pelikan called Jesus Through the Centuries. And he traces through that the history of how every generation crystallized parts of who Jesus was that previous mm-hmm. generations missed, overlooked, or de-emphasized, mm. because that was the Jesus their generation needed. Mm. And there's an opening quote in there by Albert Schweitzer, where he says, every generation has to reimagine Jesus on their own terms. And in fact, he says, that's the only way they can make Jesus live. Mm-hmm, so the idea that we can take the Jesus of our ancestors, the way that they thought about Jesus and languaged Jesus, and just lazily adopt that, to our own time and our own situation without thinking or rethinking about the ways that we uh, imagine that God uh, or encounter that God or speak of that God. Uh, I think that is to disconnect ourselves from a rich tradition of Christians who have reimagined Jesus in their way mm. for their day. And so that's essentially what I'm arguing for is that we would begin to do uh, again what generations of Christians have done, which has made the Christian faith live. Mm,
1: So good. Yeah. For those of you who are actually here in Honolulu listening, Jonathan told me he's going to be out here in Hawaii in March if people can still fly. He, and he unofficially committed to come and preach at imagine even while he's on vacation so we'll figure that out if you if if you like those 2 to 3 minute pockets we'll see it in a more extended way so it's, it's unofficial right now but we're going to work that out
0: that's right. Um, that's right i would love i would love to do that
1: oh you heard that you hold him accountable you can remember that right here man <laughs> uh let's let's do a little exercise i think all the framing of what you do is so good both out of your own experience here's how language has evolved i reconsider the meanings even as my work as a religion writer as a christian today uh, you talk about some background stuff of this is what language is built to do in general and also as people who are faithful to this story unconsciously this is what we do You know, when, no matter how much people are committed to fixed ways of thinking about it even if it's just in small ways within a framework they've adopted, they're still doing this, right? We all are doing this, right? Mm-hmm. So, what you're saying is, but if we're conscious of it, if we embrace it more, we can sort of be a part of the co enacting, the co creating of where this is going and kind of what we do with it in our time to even be more faithful, which I love. Mm-hmm. So, here's, I heard you talk about this before, and I thought using these texts to think about this is so good and also sets us up for the exercise so i've heard you talk about the first corinthians when i was a child i talked like a child and then the jesus you know you heard it said but i said and how those are connected to sort of our language and our god talk evolving so tell me a little bit about what those mean to you and how you think about those things connected with our evolving language and then we'll do the jonathan Merritt version of you heard it said but I said, and then we'll actually look at some of the specific words from your book.
0: Oh, well, you've got, you've got, you're going to, you're, you're going to really test me today. So <laughs> I would say, uh, I would say the, the idea is, and I think people, people misunderstand what the Christian life is. I think people oftentimes think that the Christian life is uh, attaining something static Mm -hmm. or, you know, believing in Christianity the way that you believe in math, Mm. that you can learn the formulas and that once you learn the formulas, you've kind of got it. And then the only thing that you have to do is to just go teach people math. Of course. And so... (laughs) that sort of is what churches do, you know, churches become kind of boot camps, certain kinds of churches, I should mm, say. Mm. And uh, I think that, that the Christian life is less like, like learning math equations and more like reading poetry. Mm. You know, you find yourself within it over and over again. And depending on the life situation you're in, when you engage it, you find yourself in in different ways. And so the, the idea there, and of course, if you read Paul, you'll see this idea, is that the Christian life is a process of mind renewal.
1: Mm.
0: It's a process of transformation
1: mm-hmm.
0: from newness to newness to newness, mm. that we would be stepping through doorways to greater consciousness throughout our lived experience. When I was a child, I mm. thought like a child. Mm-hmm. Right, I spoke like a child, and then I became an adult. The idea is, is that uh, there was a time in my life when I had ideas that were good for me, mm-hmm. but were not fully formed yet. Yeah, and that over time, those ideas give birth to other ideas. So I don't have mm-hmm. to get angry at previous versions of myself, absolutely, or or previous belief systems that I held. I can honor those previous versions because I recognized that they were necessary doorways to the place where I am now. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't be who I am now unless I became who I was. Then I couldn't think the way that I think now, unless I thought the way I thought then. And even though I sometimes feel a little sad for people Mm. who uh, believe that, um, you know, Christianity is like, is, is nothing more than memorizing flashcards. Mm. I feel sad that they they refuse to enter into the scariness and the uncertainty of mind renewal of the mm. transformation of consciousness. I also have to realize that I don't want to engage in a kind of spiritual codependency. Mm. That means that that I am somehow affected by somebody else's inability or unwillingness to engage engage in mind renewal or consciousness Absolutely. transformation. And so, you know, each person, if they are going to to walk this journey, will do it when they're ready and on their own time. And so I've, I've come to realize the Spirit doesn't need my help to nudge them along.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's especially true for pastors if they want to embrace a community, not only that's evolving as a whole, but allows people to be in different stages of the journey as well. So often when people are frustrated with somebody who may not be where they are. My question is always like, why can't you just let them be? You know what I mean? It's, it's amazing how hard that can be, especially for leaders and pastors, who I think one of the reasons why it's challenging for them is they can personalize a person's lack of growth and feel like it's totally upon them, and it actually makes them feel bad. But I'm like, that person, that's one of the mysteries of consciousness is they wake up. When they do, and that person may have taken two steps and they might stay there forever, right? Their language there, it might not grow. That person might keep going, but it is, that's such a huge thing is to allow yourself to be on that unfolding journey, but also to learn how to have the courage to call people forward as a leader, but also have the courage and the entrusting of them to let them be where they are, you know, when, when that can be a huge, that can be a challenging thing, I think so let's look at some of these words okay. this is the jonathan Merritt. you heard it said but i say. So i think that though that phrase from jesus and the way i've heard you talk about it, is just so good so you heard it said but i say what are these newer ways these newer how are we playing how is jonathan Merritt? how can the church possibly play with these words in newer more faithful more helpful ways for where we're trying to go so one of the words you talk about in your book is the word mystery Mm-hmm. right so if the word mystery is something we can play with it's something that has a huge benefit for us in our time today tell us about how that word can how we can play with it today so it's beneficial in our own journeys not just personally as we grow but also in our communication and our connection with people
0: you know mystery is one of those words that i didn't um I didn't really grow up with. Uh, so in this
1: it's case, called. it's not, you've heard it said, it's you really haven't heard it said.
0: Well. And now you know, we can
1: say this.
0: It wouldn't, it wouldn't be that I never heard it, but it was something that was, that, that w- when it was spoken, it was like a puzzle that had been solved mm. and, or that was waiting for us to solve it. So it was mysterious until we studied it and then it was no longer mysterious. So the idea that we were stewards of the mysteries of God, it's like, yeah, yeah, we're God's mystery, but we can sort of basically figure God out. Mm.
1: Um,
0: I began to realize that that was sort of a hyper rational approach. I mean, then what happens is, is you, you start to think God is really simple. God is sort Mm. of like a a mystery that you can just unlock. Mm. And then God isn't. Mm. And then your life falls apart. And then the lips that said, I love you, are saying, I'm leaving you. Mm. And then the things that you believed were true no longer can withstand the weight of your own life. And the things that once made sense no longer make sense Mm -hmm. because now you have more data to include, so the the lived experience of an 18 year old, uh, that system was perfectly equipped to make sense of that. Mm -hmm. But once life became more complicated, more painful, Mm -hmm. more informed, Mm -hmm. more connected to people that it was separated from in the past, you begin to find that God seems a little more enshrouded in uh, a cloud. Mm. You know, uh, Thomas Aquinas once said that the highest knowledge of God is to know that we do not know Mm. that if you really know God uh, as much as you can know God, you're going to say you don't know God, right? That, that embracing mystery is sort of this high watermark uh, of faith. And I, I began to think then, well, then maybe faith is just the unknowable stuff. Hmm. So you can go either direction, right? The, the, the way that you're raised in a hyper-rational setting says, mystery is like a math equation. You just have to learn the rules and you can punch all the numbers and then you'll figure it out the the other side which is sort of the cynic or the skeptic or the um uh the agnostic uh and i don't mean agnostic in in a in a in a, in a cognitive sense but just sort of the person who says i don't know what you can know but there's yeah, something yeah yeah um that person will often say the mystery is the unknowable you can't even you know well you know who can know god anyway god's just so far out and disconnected and we can't really know God. God is just a big uh, mystery. And as I say in the book, I was talking to uh, a a friend of of mine who's uh, a Catholic mystic. And I said, well, you know, what about mystery? What do you do with mystery? Like, why why would somebody waste time trying to know the unknowable? Mm. And I remember this person says to me, maybe that I've misunderstood what Mm. mystery is. Maybe mystery is not something that is unknowable. Maybe it's something that is infinitely knowable.
1: Mm.
0: That you continue to know and to know and to know. And as you get older and you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, by your own transformation of consciousness, you're sort of approximating yourself closer to the divine. You're beginning to know the divine in some way, but because the divine is so infinite, is so infinitely knowable, the more you know about God, the more you realize you don't know. The more you know about God, you're not getting closer to a full knowledge of God because Mm. it's an infinite knowability. Mm, And that concept of mystery, I think, Mm takes us away from hyper rationalism. It takes us away from cynicism and it, and it transforms the spiritual life into the endless adventure that it can. be. Absolutely. That's why I think we have to reimagine what mystery is. And I think that's a way to reimagine it. That could be helpful for all of us.
1: Yeah. I'm going to tell you this quick story that I want to ask a follow-up question based off of that. When I was 24, I was living in Costa Mesa at the time and I was on a, it was like a late night walk it was essentially contemplative walk being present you know not nothing really specific happening and at that point i was smoking a black and mild because that's just nostalgia for me as a child and i remember as i was walking it was sometimes as i'm in my whatever my spiritual practice looks like of silence oftentimes I will be speaking out loud very slowly, very, you know, in, it's in my head and I say things out loud. And it was like this diatribe just formed in my mind and I said it out loud. When I was walking, I said, it's those moments where you just know. And then another voice said, know what? And then the first voice said, I don't know, but you just do And the reason why that story to me is so important when we talk about things like this is, and I want to ask you this question. If there's a difference between spiritual intelligence, sort of how we think about God and spiritual experience, a direct immediacy, a a, a relational knowing of God, I want to ask you this, what is the connection or the relationship between spiritual experience, being known, being seen, being loved by God, and spiritual intelligence, allowing your view of God, your language of God to change. Because so often what I see is I think people who have a hard time allowing their views of God to change they have such little inner experience, which means they have such little, what you said before, inner authority. So it's like, if you take away the beliefs, if you take away the belief system, if you take away the way they've always done things, that's all they had. Whereas so often what I see is the people who go through moments of reimagining and deconstruction well seem to be grounded a little more in the unknowing, in the experiential. So they're like, I can let my views of God my language of God change and evolve because that actually isn't the core of what grounds me It's more from a place of experience. So do you see that in your own life along the way connections there? Do you see that with people as we change how we talk about God?
0: Yes Um, You know There are different Epistemological Epistemology is sort of how we know what we know there are different epistemological systems that we find in Protestantism and most of them historically have valued all kinds of things, the natural world and science, Mm. which has been cut off in many traditions. Uh, Like I said before, the authority of our everyday experience that we can know through the incarnation of our own lives, Um, logic, and reason can be very helpful. Mm. And church tradition and history. Mm. And then of course, the Bible. Mm. In many, in many uh, religious traditions now, some of those things have been completely severed. And so, mm. for example, um, many people are, are saying now, well, what does the Bible say? That's a good question. But it's not a good question when it's the only question. Mm. You see? Uh, because uh, it's, it, it, a, if you only ask a partial question, you get a partial answer. Mm-hmm. And when you get a partial answer, you may be wondering why it only partially satisfies or mm. why it only partially works. The reason for that is, is I think we have de- de- denied the richness of, 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 of the breadth of human knowing sources of knowledge that are completely legitimate. We have severed those in a kind of hyper-rationalistic, post-Enlightenment Western era, Mm -hmm. where we practice a particular kind of Christianity that has some strengths and some weaknesses. Uh, It's one of the reasons why I think that Westerners can be so helped from Eastern expressions Mm -hmm. of... Uh, of Christianity because those make more space Mm. for experience. Uh, They make uh, more space for uh, unknowing. They they are willing to withhold judgment Mm. until they walk a while. Mm. And I think they're also focused as much on the questions as they are the answers. Mm. You know, there's holiness in a question. I think so many people think that the only thing that's holy is the answer, but there's holiness in the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The great Jewish rabbis used to say, God is in the wrestling. Mm-hmm. God is in yep. the space between the letters, yep. between Listen, the words, yeah. between the sentences and between the paragraphs, that, that the spirit is flowing in the midst of all of this, that the spirit is in the known and the unknown, mm-hmm. the revealed, and the yet to be revealed, yep. um, and 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 so God can be found in the in the experiential, and so it, contemplative practices mm-hmm. are becoming really big right now. We're we're beginning to realize that just like God can be known in the questions, just like the answers, God can be known in the silence mm-hmm. and the speaking. That that there is a tradition that says, "Make a joyful noise to the Lord." Next to a tradition that says, be still and know that Mm. I am God in your silence and your stillness, salvation will come. Isaiah says Mm -hmm. the Western church has picked up on part of divine connectivity, Mm. but where it has gone wrong is, is where it is said that the part is the whole. Mm -hmm. And I think you find a generation now that is discovering this whole other way of being Christian, a whole other way of connecting with the divine and they're finding life there life. They didn't expect.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you just so good. And you just can't deny that in the perennial tradition, in the stream of contemplative Christianity, which has been there for a long time, even though it's always been a smaller stream, it's been in the great river for a long time and all of the great christian non-christian mystics people who just know god people who are really grounded every single one of those people has a normalized and extended practice of silence and solitude again make a joyful noise a lot of you know people of course in the church would love that but there is this undeniability of that space that opens up when we are quiet, when the inner life expands, and when we and thats that is that that is what opens up to the, the inner experience, which leads to the inner authority. Which I go back to what you said in the beginning because that's so crucial, and I think that's why when when people talk about the future of the church, experience based practice-based. Those are connected because it is moving more and more towards, which is really just a part of maturing as an individual is learning to trust your own voice, learning to trust your own experience and not have that codependency that you talked about on external authorities or people giving you that permission. So, oh, I love that. Uh, Let's, let's do another word. Okay. This is a big one. Let's do the word God. So you've heard it said, But I, I in this case would be Jonathan Merritt says, and in your chapter, I think you do some great bigger picture stuff on, you know, statistically, just looking at a punitive, angry view of God, which people have just sort of absorbed from the atmosphere or have heard explicitly from sermons, teachings, parents, et cetera. You know, this people can show you looking at the brain, looking at different tests, that this is just bad for your health. And then, We can see when you have a more healthier, loving, embracing, inclusive view of God, it's actually better for your health. So talk to us about how that, just that word God that we use has changed and how we can be more faithful to it as we move forward.
0: You know, um, there's a great quote um, by an old preacher named A.W. Tozier who was a 20th century pastor and, uh, an author. Um, you know, I don't agree with a lot of what Tozer says because
1: the only man- person God. who talks about the inner life that's accepted by evangelicals. basically, right.
0: <laughs> Truly. <laughs> but he says, um, you know, that, that, that what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Hmm. And I tend to think he's right, or at least almost right. It's very, very important that, that if you believe that there is, to use Tillich's phrase, a ground of all being, mm. like that God doesn't exist. God is existence yeah, itself, absolutely. Mm. right? Ex- this, this idea like, do you believe God exists? No, I don't. I don't think existing is something that God does. Mm. I think that God is existence. So whatever mm. you want to call existence or being or reality, that's mm. God. Mm. Um, if you believe that that, 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 that that is an important concept, which I think you have to, then what comes into your mind when you think about reality, being, existence, God, love, mm. Is incredibly important. Mm,
1: yeah.
0: Well, we have, we, have, we have spoken about God in ways that have given God, the word God, a kind of feel. Words have kinds mm. of feels to yeah. them. They don't just have meanings. Yep. They have a feeling. You might agree with, with the meaning of a word, but you don't like the way it feels because mm. maybe it has been used against you in a way that didn't feel so good. And so now when that word is used, it does, it feels really bad to you. It makes Mm -hmm. you feel maybe unsafe Mm -hmm. or anxious when you hear a word, um, that that's sort of telling you that, that, that this word has been shaded in some way. And when we look at the way that the word God has been shaded, we see that, that if you have a, a God who is distant or critical or authoritarian, Mm. As, as, as opposed to a connected, uh, benevolent or love-centric mm. God, you're going to have a, a whole bunch of problems that actually what we find is, is that if you believe that God is a certain way, you will often become like the God that you believe exists. Absolutely. And so if you've, so ever, cool. had, if you've ever met somebody, and you, know, you can hear countless stories of this, but I bet a lot of people who are listening to this podcast right now will, will understand what I'm saying. Maybe you were raised by a mother or a father who, was, uh, who believed in a harsh authoritarian God. Maybe you had a pastor who preached about a fiery hell where millions of people are burning forever because they didn't say some magic incantation in the brief Mm -hmm. life they were given. Mm -hmm. You may also realize that that person looked a lot like that God. Mm -hmm. They were judgmental. They would cut people off for all time. Mm -hmm. They were willing to make people suffer because of some value or belief that was abstract and out there. Mm Um, they made righteous, fiery judgments, and they had uh, a wrath they believed was righteous that could destroy people, particularly the weak. Mm. What we find is is that that what we think about when we think about God is actually quite substantial. Mm. It shapes us in ways that we previously did not realize. Yeah. And so I think that we have to begin to to ask ourselves, what do we mean when we say God? Yeah. What are we saying? It's why I think that the pronouns we use for God are important. Mm. If we only think mm. about God as an old white man, it's a problem. Mm. And uh, if we think about Jesus as a as a you know dusty old dead white man, it's a it's mm. a problem. It makes a difference. And so we have to think intentionally about what we mean when we say God, I think looking back, as I wrote this book, I talk a lot about um, revisiting the word God and reimagining it. I think if I were, you know, and I talk about um, uh, fossilization of words where you mm, just protect yeah. them and say, what, the, what I think this means is the only thing it should ever mean. I talk about substitution. Well, I don't like this. Let's throw that away and let's find a new word. Um, I, I think if I were writing this book today, I might have, in, instead of talking about the way that we revisit and reimagine these words, I think I would have talked about expansion—that mm. we include the way that we include these words, and we also find new words and new mm. meanings. Mm-hmm. That the vocabulary of faith should be always and ever expanding. Yeah. And if I had to write it over today, it would be that slight tweak that I would make. I I think we should talk about God. I don't think that the G word should be a curse word, but I also mm. think that there are other ways to talk about God that we should include in our spiritual vocabulary, in the vocabulary of faith today that we probably aren't considering.
1: Yeah. I think due to the nature of our church out here and imagine, you know, like you can imagine a lot of unchurched, de over it on the edges, cynical, you know, how always having a strong presence of LGBTQ people in our church. I do find myself when I get to certain moments teaching, if a word like sin comes up or other things, it's like we have to spend five minutes doing what you're doing in the book with particular words. You know, like, Mm -hmm. here's why this can trigger you. Here's why this is connected with entire histories and trajectories of oppression and injustice. So, but if we allow ourselves to play with it differently to be to try to be more faithful to the text here's actually why it's so helpful to do that you know so it's like you have this chance to bring people into the the depth of what you're saying and i love that too to expand it right there for them to expand it and to push it forward and to allow them to bring it in because it's there and it has there's something there for all of us because this is about leading us to life and more joy, and more peace all the time. I think we got like 10 minutes left um, after we first connected and talked for a sec. I'm going to skip over a couple of the words because I want to give you a chance just to conclude by sharing some of your heart for a couple people. Because when I think about this book, when I think about language evolving, connected with our faith, changing and evolving, and how those two are so connected, here's my question. What would you want younger people who are newer to the faith and this journey with Christ and the church to take in from this. And then what would you want leaders, pastors and more experienced Christians? And I just mean people who have been in the church for longer to take away from this. Cause so often when you finish a teaching, you say something, you're like, here's what this really means for where you are in the journey. And here's what this means for where you are Because depending on where you are and who you are, it actually might be opening up something different within each one of you on the same path. So newer language, what does that mean for younger people coming into the faith in their experience of God and how they communicate and talk about God if we don't want to use the G word as a bad word? And then what would you hope leaders and pastors who have been doing this for a while can hear from you during this time?
0: Oh, I think that this is
1: this is like the this is the freedom of the ten minute mini sermon, uh-huh. Jonathan. Mary, you know, because the light you you guys can't see this from where you are because this is all audio that I'm going to use. But the light from Jonathan is emanating so brightly that I can look at my. It was black when we started talking. The sky is navy blue now, and it's not just because the sun's rising in Honolulu because it's six a.m. He he's it's coming through Zoom right now, so this is the <laughs> chance to bring it all. Bring it all together.
0: You know, here is what I will say that I see as a big, big problem now, especially among pastors, but also just among regular folks. Fundamentalism is a hell of a drug. Mm. And fundamentalism dies hard. Mm. And what I'm finding now is people who are taking the journey that we're talking about but they are packing a suitcase full Mm. of the old tools that they were taught in the places where they were raised. Mm. And so you find ex evangelicals and post evangelicals and post Christians and the liberal woke cancel culture crowd. And everybody is sort of bludgeoning each other. And what Mm. I see is uh, mirror projections of fundamentalists Mm. on both sides so i see i see liberals who learned far too well the slandering silencing and shaming tactics Mm. that were used against them and i understand Mm. that they're hurt i understand that they're angry i understand that they're heartbroken I know what those things feel like. They deserve to feel those feelings. They deserve to process those feelings. They deserve to demand accountability from people who are traumatizing and re-traumatizing new generations of, of God seekers. Mm. However, I think that, you know, as Audre Lorde once said, you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Mm. And we are going to have to make space for reconciliation and redemption. We're gonna have to learn to believe the best in people. We're gonna have to learn to find a way to love people who uh, make their best effort to be as unlovable as possible. We're gonna have to rediscover the transformative power of mercy. And we're gonna have to do these things even as we advocate for justice. And I think right now we're in a period where righteous anger is being vented in such a way that it is destroying people who need healing, Mm. destroying people who have already endured too much toxicity at the hands of bad religion. Mm. And what I hope for people is, is that people like me and people like you, who are actively trying to seek out God will remember that God is found in forgiveness and mercy and love and, and and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, just like God is found in justice and equality. And we have to find a way to bring all of those fruits forward at the same time. Otherwise what we end up doing is vomiting on people who vomited on us is being unhealthy uh, back to people who are unhealthy yeah. and hurting people who have hurt us. Mm. And the cycle will continue. And this is not the way of Gandhi. It mm. is not the way of MLK. Mm. It is not the way of Susan B. Anthony. It's not the way of Nelson Mandela. Mm. It is not the way of the great justice leaders mm. uh, of, uh, of human history. And so I reject uh, that way. I reject outrage culture. I reject council mm, culture. Mm. I reject the kind of Girardian scapegoating that is now mm, yeah. uh, happening in the public square. Yeah. And uh, I think that we either have to, as, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, we either have to learn to live together as brothers and sisters or perish as fools. Mm. And I think that's the choice that we're facing right now. Yes.
1: Oh, my gosh. So good. That's why I skipped over those last two words. So we can conclude with that right there. Man, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on, for taking the time. You don't realize it, but you, know, you're, you kind of through Zoom are taking in the, the, the sunrise on this Friday morning in Hawaii right now as it's starting to come up out the window here. So for those listening, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Jonathan's latest book, check it out. You can find him on instagram at jonathan Merritt if you want to see what's happening uh although i know you're taking a little bit of break from instagram and twitter right now because you got some I'll, you got I'll some be on i saw, instagram.
0: On, okay, instagram. on instagram
1: okay yeah yes yeah uh you can find all everything he's ever written at the atlantic you can find him at religion news services you can just google him and he's one of those names where you can google him and find him in many different places whether he wants to be there or not, he's there. So you can find him all over. So check out his latest book. Jonathan, one more time, thank you so much for coming on. This was so good. I appreciate this so much. The first interview and conversation for The Church Needs Therapy.
0: It, is, it has been my pleasure to be with you, and I can't wait to see who comes after me.
1: Oh, yes. No, there's going to be some good people. Some you might even know personally, too. So we'll okay. see about that. So <laughs> thank you, Jonathan. We will uh, hopefully talk soon. Maybe next time there might be drinks involved. Maybe a Four Seasons in Hawaii. Maybe there'll be dolphins, turtles, whole different situation. That's yeah. the, yes, That that's, that's how I get people to come on. I let them know I can do all those things. So <laughs> man, have a great day and uh, hopefully we'll connect again. Thanks so much.